Hello listeners, I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal is joined by Assad Haider, the author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump, to discuss our current state of political exhaustion, as well as questions of identity and class in political movements. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi there, welcome to Below the Radar. We're very excited to have Assad Haider with us today. He's written a, a book called uh, Mistaken Identity that will be in the uh, notes uh, with the show and everything. So uh, welcome, Assad. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great. Uh, I wonder if we can just begin by you just uh, introducing yourself uh, a little bit. Yeah, so, you know, uh, I've, I'm one of the editors of Viewpoint Magazine. We started that back in 2011. Uh, it's been a journal of Marxist theory, and it really came into being uh, through the Occupy movement and uh, as an attempt to think through many of the strategic, organizational, and conceptual questions that that moment raised. And uh, then more recently, I've written this book, Mistaken Identity, and uh since then, I've just uh, continued uh, to uh, engage in this kind of theoretical work, uh, this political theoretical work. Uh, in, in terms of uh, viewpoint and its sort of origins in and around the Occupy movement, uh, reflecting back on it now, I recently I'm teaching a graduate liberal studies class right now, and we had uh, Astra Taylor join us, and, and she's uh, continuing to think and write about it as well, both in terms of democracy, but also some uh, current work that she's doing on on solidarity and uh, looking back uh, on it with some with some distance what are some of your um, reflections around it as a as a social movement both its sort of um, successes and and maybe um, lack of successes in in moments how, how you think about it now that it's been you know almost 10 years well you know uh what I wrote about it at the time and continued to kind of uh, be preoccupied with and what viewpoint was really exploring and then what I recount in the book I would I would we could say two things um one was the question of organization which was very important to me and that was you know a very central debate that happened at that point because people were talking about whether horizontalist forms of organization are uh, superior in some way, whether they've surpassed previous forms of organization, if they prefigure a different kind of society. Then there were the um, interpretations which said we've had the horizontalism for a long time that isn't able to actually confront the existing structures. We need to have, um, and, and, and often that that was posed as a binary between organization and disorganization. We need organization. Organization means something maybe that people call a party, um, not clear whether that means uh, a vanguard party or it means a political party on the model of a parliamentary uh, party. Um, so there were many kinds of uh, conflations, uh, questions, or, or let's say answers to questions which weren't posed yet. Um, and I thought that, first of all, most of the time we are already dealing with forms of organization that maybe are not clearly articulated, maybe haven't been deliberately constructed, but there are organizational practices at work and uh, they have to be thought through deliberately and they can't just be understood as expressions of a pre-existing model 
as determined by a historical moment. And I mean, there are many ways that uh, these kinds of positions are appealing to people, but it seemed to me that it was necessary to think of organization as something which um, we don't know yet what the answer is to what's the right way to organize. And that is that, and, and that has never been the case. You know, even when the formation of political parties, uh, of, of, of workers' parties at the end of the 19th century, that also was an experiment that was determined based on a very specific situation, very specific set of historical changes, even if it was often represented as though it was just determined by the laws of history. Uh, so frequently you find this, you know, in the history of Marxism and so on, that the, the, these um, uh, uh, phenomena that are really based on specific circumstances are presented as though they were historical necessity. Uh, but we have to understand the, the, the specificity. Um, so that was one important theme. And then the one that I talk about in Mistaken Identity is, you know, at a certain level, um, we were encountering the question Occupy of who who is involved here? Who's making up the this, this group? Uh, who is this 99%? And uh, it often did seem to be the case that it was largely white. Why is that true in, you know, majority black cities? Why is that true uh, in all kinds of circumstances in which, let's say, uh, the, the class politics that were at least gestured to in the Occupy movement uh, were of considerable importance for many people of color? But it's not uh, a movement that many of these people of color saw as uh, one that they wanted to get involved in, or it, it wasn't one that represented uh, a broader spectrum of people. That was a problem. Uh, but then at the same time, there, there was this problem on the other end, which is this kind of language of identity, which always got rerouted into a kind of discourse of guilt, uh, a discourse, a confessional discourse, um, which didn't actually change the composition uh, of these movements, uh, but it resulted in a lot of uh, what you know uh, we might call sad passions. It resulted in a lot of uh, negative ways of people relating to each other that were actually disempowering and actually prevented the possibility of expanding and growing. And so that contradiction is what I was. Uh, that that's what led to a lot of mistaken identity. Hey, yeah, this this question of scale and duration and organization is so interesting. I've seen David Harvey and many others write about having resistance movement function at the scale of power that oftentimes we're not functioning at, at the scale. Or even when I'm uh, teaching with my, my own students to describe uh, experiments, the Russian example, the Chinese example, the 20th century examples of state those examples um, don't go very far or they don't resonate with the students because of uh, their own uh, problematics. So this question of hegemony keeps coming back as to how we, how we do this. Um, in, in your book, uh, Mistaken Identity, I, I loved its uh, playfulness. And there's an anecdote in the book where you're in elementary school uh, to do an assignment on, I think it was Isaac Newton, and you ended up picking up a copy of Huey Newton. So wondering if you can talk a little bit about where the idea behind that book uh, came from, because questions of identity politics, others are, are always around, and it's certainly used by the right in uh, so many ways, in a very simplistic way. And I think you're writing from a fairly generous point of view from the left as a critique, and that makes it a, a very interesting 
um, interventions. So uh, first of all, where did the idea of the, of the book uh, come from? So I became introduced, I, be, I became politicized introduced, and especially introduced to Marxism through uh, the black movements in the United States. And so to me, there was, there was always a fundamental unity between uh, the, the historical movements against racism and uh, the opposition to capitalism. And the uh, fact of, a, of international solidarity uh, against uh, capitalism, imperialism, which may mean at certain stages that in the old language national self-determination or what we might call in other more broadly different forms of autonomous organization are uh, appropriate and necessary, uh, but that does not alter the fundamental uh, vision of universal emancipation. And that was uh, you, you know, you can't read these uh, original texts, like, for example, those of Huey P. Newton or other major figures, even people who are understood to be entirely, who, who, are, who are depicted as uh, separatists or, or whatever, like Malcolm X, for example, you find the same language, even, even when he was in the Nation of Islam and so on, you'll find him using this kind of language, of, you know, uh, that... I'm talking about everybody in the world who is oppressed by the white man. You know, I'm, I, you know, the the examples uses the examples of the Chinese Revolution. These are basic examples for him of what the political project is, and uh, so that was something I learned from this material. And so the fact that I encountered discussions, polarized discussions about race or about what well, the relation between race and class and various things of that kind, polarized discussions in which on the one, one side would say, you know, that Marxism or any kind of anti-capitalist project is for white people. It's not useful for people of color who, you know, have the, their, their own unique sets of demands and interests. And so we have to view that with suspicion. That was one uh, kind of perspective. The other perspective was one which said, you know, well, ultimately on the basis of maybe some kind of theory of history or theory of human nature, uh, only class is really fundamentally important and all of these other things, uh, race, other social relations, ultimately are gonna come back down to class and so that's what we have to focus on. And uh, you know, that the, the, the fact that there was this polarization after I had uh, been so steeped in and influenced by these important traditions that never saw them as separable. That really framed my uh, kind of political experience of this. And that is, as you say, there are many critiques of identity politics, but uh, it's, it's rare to find uh, explicit critiques uh, or analyses that um, refer back to this perspective, this revolutionary perspective. And I think that's the one that I wanted to bring to the book. Um, how did you find the, the reception of the book in uh, progressive uh, circles? Like where did the conversation get welcomed in and, and what kind of uh, critiques did you hear as, as well? Yeah, I appreciate the, that, you know, many people responded uh, enthusiastically, said that it resonated um, with their political experiences or, or helped them to think um, through political challenges and problems they were facing. And that's something that is, uh, that's very important feedback for me. There is also very, once, uh, you know, this polarization is very strong. And so uh, 
if you write something which isn't simply a denunciation, uh, many people will, who are on one extreme or the other will just think you're in the opposite camp. And uh, then anything you say can be, you know, this is, there people have extraordinary um, uh, abilities of interpretation and, you know, imagination that anything you say can then be uh, somehow presented as confirming that you're in the enemy camp. Uh, so a lot of it was that. And um, there's, like, I, as I said, I mean, anything you say will be um, creatively interpreted. So I didn't, I didn't really know how to engage in those discussions. I, I responded to a review one time, but <laughs> otherwise, uh, otherwise, you know, there's been, there's been an ongoing process of clarification. I did from debates learn a lot about I first of all learned a lot, like I said, there's this basic method uh, that I, I think is very important of reading a text or reading a, a, a political situation and saying, very often we're answering questions that we haven't posed and we need to figure out what the questions are and then figure out if those are the right questions. And so there is a significant extent to which in mistaken identity, I was answering questions that I have not clearly posed for myself yet. And so sometimes uh, that, you know, sort of people brought other questions to the book. And so that you have this kind of indeterminacy of the meaning. And for example, many people asked, okay, the, the book, that's, that's all very nice, but what actually is the relationship between race and class? You didn't explain it. And then I realized um, as I as I tried to elaborate what I think about that and what the points that were made in the book, I realized that I didn't present a theory of that because I don't actually think that a theory of the relationship between race and class, first of all, is possible at a certain level of abstraction that people want to uh, uh, explain it. And then second, I don't think that it is the basis for determining a politics, which very frequently, and this is something that obviously we're going to get to, uh, very frequently the assumption is that when we figure out the correct social analysis, that will provide us with the correct politics. And one of the things I learned from uh, thinking through mistaken identity and, and looking at the discussions and, and intervening where it was appropriate, I think I learned that point that that is uh, a false assumption, and that that's one which we have to think through. Yeah, and and I think there's other there's um, historical passages and in, in periods that are interesting. You know, I was involved in student politics in the in the '90s, and so there were various forms, uh, what today might be called identity politics. But um, as uh, people opened up spaces like uh, women's centers to color connected against racism and others. Uh, the questions of solidarity were still quite central. And I think to some degree, those are being adjudicated in a different way. And maybe there's maybe challenges between and amongst movements um, um, a little bit more intensely. I think also uh, when it comes to uh, the specificity of some conversations and, and where they're at uh, in, the, in the Canadian example, uh, colonialism and the indigenous experience, there's a specificity to that um, context that requires um, 
a different type of, of, of politics and a, and a centering of it. But then also then questions of solidarity uh, continued to be um, uh, played out and also the disproportionate impact on uh, of black people in, in policing in, in the Canadian context and, and others. And so I think that uh, questions that it poses to movements broadly on that question of movement building, solidarity, organization uh, to the labor movement as well. And um, the academic institutions and, and others. I wanted to, to um, ask you um, about, I was able to attend the other day, um, a, a workshop with the, the Amsterdam uh, School of Cultural Analysis in the world of Zoom and, and all of that. And it was great to see you uh, present there. And you were discussing uh, partially the work of Sylvain Lazarus, who's been a longtime a collaborator of, of Elaine Badu. And I'm um, wondering if you can talk about what you're finding interesting in his work and that he's quite an obscure figure in many ways, particularly in the, the English speaking uh, world. Badu's work has circulated maybe a little bit more uh, than, than his has. Uh, but what is it in his work that you're finding particularly interesting to think through today? So, you know, as I mentioned, I only ever responded to one review of mistaken identity, and I was looking back over my, you know, over my records to see, you know, where I started to develop particular points, and I realized it was it was the day before I published that that I read this article by Lazarus called "Workers' Anthropology and Factory Inquiry," and I had come across, you know, one interesting point to make here is that viewpoint from the beginning was very grounded in uh, the tradition of Italian workerism and the idea of class composition. And so class was a fundamental concern, but the idea was that class isn't something that is an already existing sociological object. You have to understand how classes are actually composed, and they're composed through uh, particular kinds of productive processes, particular labor processes, because it's not just that you add up individuals and suddenly you have a class. It's that you know uh, workers enter into the factory and they become a cooperative productive force, and then you have something which isn't just a collection of individuals, but it's an actual. It, it's been people have been composed into something that we can call a class. Uh, and then, so then you have uh, processes of organization when people engage in political action, and that also composes classes. So you, th this is a this is a complex process. Of course, th this this also rested on the assumption that every political question would be referred back to the question of class composition. And so, for example, if you wanted to go beyond the narrow framework of you know the of the European and male industrial worker, you would point out, you would show how the working class was also composed of women working in the home. It was also composed of slaves and migrants and so on throughout the history of capitalism. And with that, you would show, you know, how all of these other social relations were fundamentally important. They weren't, they weren't somehow secondary. But you did that through showing how they were also part of class. So that was this very sophisticated uh, theories of class composition did that. And uh, so I had that in my mind, but it actually, that doesn't appear in mistaken identity. I don't actually make that argument, uh, though I, I had it, in, uh, of course, in my mind. Uh, and then I, I, as I said, one of the realizations, one of the questions that I hadn't posed that I was trying to answer in the book was actually, what is a politics of universal emancipation? And the answer I provided without posing the question was that class, 
presents the basis for a politics of universal emancipation. So I looked at, you know, where class dropped out of uh, anti-racism. I, you know, I looked at how class dynamics affected these movements, but I didn't explain why it is that we should equate class and emancipatory politics. Uh, that question was suspended. And one thing that I realized through studying Lazarus was that when you pose the question that way, you cannot understand the character of emancipatory politics because emancipatory politics has to be formulated first. Because if you start with any sociological category, any category of the existing reality, you will not be able to conceive of the way that there is a politics which can go beyond this situation, that is that it exceeds this situation. And Badiou talks about this too in his own way. Uh, so that was a that was an important realization that came from reading this article, which uh, which we had come across in studying uh, workers' inquiry, which was a fundamental practice of Italian workerism that led to the method of class composition. I'd come across this article, but never really read it because it was outside of the that traditions that we were talking about. For some reason, I read it at this point, and I, I saw that he, he was dealing with the same problem of going out, going to a workplace and trying to figure out what's happening there, but a totally different approach, which was not to say that, okay, let's say that uh, we are going to look at the way the productive process is set up, and then we're going to figure out on that basis what kinds of political organizations and practices people are going to form. It was actually to ask people how they understood what was politically at stake in the factory. What were the opposed positions uh, that they took in the factory? And how did particular words uh, like immigrant or worker, how did these words demonstrate these opposed, what Lazarus, he calls these problematic words, which represent opposed prescriptions. So the bosses will have a particular kind of position on who is a worker, who counts as a worker, the workers will have their own prescription. And he, so he investigates that. And that, you know, sort of reflects this difference in method, which is that workers are able to uh, formulate a thought about what politics is, which cannot just be derived from the, their, their labor process, and that you need to start with that. And then from that, you can determine what politics is taking place. And, you know, this this is the, the step that is not uh, clearly, it's, it's not clear what the relationship then is between determining these political prescriptions and then doing the social analysis, which still is, is unavoidable. I don't know how to explain that relationship uh, yet, but um, I think that with the approach that Lazarus is presenting, we balance the um, constant uh, assumption that we have that we always need to start with social analysis. Yeah, or, or this, as you say in your own um, uh, paper, that uh, this notion of emancipation exists, um, is oftentimes posed with in terms of a specific um, situation of, of domination. And, and I guess in, in, in Badu's uh, work uh, from logic to anthropology, he also uh, talks about a kind of affirmative um, uh, dialectic as opposed to the negative. And, and, and he's, he's likely uh, building on his conversations with, with, with Lazarus. Um, you, you also spoke the other day about um, this notion of exhaustion and how to 
think it through philosophically, where to place it. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit um, about that, because I think it came up towards the end of your, your talk uh, the other day, but I wanted to hear more. <laughs> yeah, and I just, uh, there's an article now on the, in the South Asian avant-garde anthology with this title, Emancipation and Exhaustion. I go into one of the only figures who has elaborated on Lazarus's work, uh, Ernest Wamba Diawamba, and then you have also Michael Neocosmos who has followed that. So these are some of the only people who, besides uh, the, the small circle in France, who have elaborated on this. So the, the, the category of exhaustion is very closely related to what Lazarus calls the method of saturation. And so you know, it's not totally clear how they're distinguished in his usage or in Badiou's usage, but I mean, I've, I've kind of used them in distinct ways, but the method of saturation is extremely important, and it's about what relationship do we have to past moments of politics, which we somehow understand as having failed, and that is something that anybody who's committed to an emancipatory politics, you cannot avoid this question, and there are are so many ways that we can try to make this question easier for ourselves uh, in, in a way that's ultimately, uh, we're ultimately deceiving ourselves because it's not an easy question. So we could say, you know, well, if, if this guy had been in charge instead of this guy, it would have worked out better. You know, we can say, if, it, if a revolution happened in this country instead of that country, it would have worked out. Uh, so, you know, th there are all kinds of wish fulfillments that we <laughs> engage in in that sense. Uh, but the, the difficult thing to do is to say, actually, there was uh, a political event there. There was new possibilities were created in these uh, in revolutions and these other moments. And they also came to an end. They, and and the, the inventions that they had generated, they lapsed, to use Lazarus's term. And so the method of saturation is about understanding, uh, instead of taking, you know, some kind of, instead of thinking in terms of counterfactuals, instead of thinking in terms of some kind of teleology in which these errors will be overcome when we really go through the process of historical development that's required, you understand politics is happening in sequences that begin and end. And in these sequences, uh, there are inventions of new categories, new sites of politics. And when those categories no longer respond to their situation when these sites of politics like councils, Soviets, uh, other things like that, when they lapse, the, the sequence has ended. And so the method of saturation says we understand what invention took place while also understanding how the sequence ended. And uh, that is a very different kind of relationship to this history. And it's one that's very much embedded in the moment that Lazarus and Badiou are writing in, uh, which Badiou talks about in an interesting way as the crisis of Marxism in the 80s. Uh, it's a situation in which everybody's having to grapple with the fact that the, you know, people who participated in these uh, organizations, these, these communist Marxist organizations, had to grapple with the fact that their language didn't seem to be able to explain the situation that we're now in. And so... Uh, the, the, that's the fundamental insight of the method of saturation. But the, the, the way that I'm talking about exhaustion is that, first of all, it's, you know, when, when a political sequence comes to, a, to an end, you can say that its categories have been exhausted. You can't just take uh, the categories of a past political sequence and just circulate them to the present and say, like, 
well, that's just always how politics works. Uh, no, that it was exhausted there. And so you have to think about what's going to be specific to a new political sequence. And uh, then there's another sense which relates to this moment from which this theory is being presented, this moment of the crisis of Marxism, this moment of the failure and collapse of state socialism, which is uh, that it's now become... Uh, almost impossible for us to imagine political sequences of the kind that took place in the 20th century. We have, of course, many important social movements. Uh, you know, there, there's never a moment in which people simply meekly submit to domination. There's always resistance. But do we have these sequences which become universal reference for politics in which uh, entirely new ways of conceiving of, of politics are happening, which actually transform the existing social structures? You know, sequences in which nothing is the same again and the possibility of an entirely different kind of world is presented. It's hard to imagine that now. And even people who uh, are engaged in politics, who may be engaged in left politics, may frequently think, well, that's, you know, we, we don't need to think in those terms because we're going we're gonna to figure out how to rearrange the society we have to be more fair so that, you know, everybody's got what they need, uh, but not to imagine a kind of uh, form of human life in which people govern themselves, in which everything is common. And we've gone beyond the relations of private property and the state that have defined the whole of human history uh, up to this point. And so that's that's the moment of exhaustion. And that is, uh, I think that if we want to understand the problems that are associated with identity politics and so on, I don't think we start by looking at people's bad ideas or we start by looking at how they've made mistakes in their judgments. We look at the fact that we are in this moment of exhaustion and it's become difficult to mobilize political sequences. Um, I'm wondering, uh, you know, uh, uh, in so much of your work, there's a kind of thread or a through line, or maybe I'm reading into it, this, uh, the question of solidarity comes in, organization, durability, strategy of, of, of movements and, and left politics. I'm wondering, in this sort of moment of authoritarian populisms that abound, the kind of large questions of community that come to the surface, how you uh, think through what strategy might look like today in not a post-Trump era, because Trumpism is still here, in, in the context of, of, of you being in the, in the United States, uh, what are some things that are on the table for you as questions of the present moment? That's a great question. I mean, I think that, uh, as I said, I think that this moment is very much framed by exhaustion. And we could look at that in um, a kind of more immediate sense. Um, I, I described on the one on the one side, the way that political sequence comes to an end and its categories have been exhausted. Then I described this moment of a kind of general historical crisis in which uh, it seems like the possibility of uh, political sequence has been exhausted. Then there's also, let's just, you know, to be very uh, simplistic about it, a little bit of crude thinking as Brecht said, uh, 
you know, you, when you participate in politics, you really eventually be, get exhausted. Uh, anybody who is participating in the uh, uprisings over the summer, you know, there's a. This is something by you. If people read his book on on riots, uh, rebirth of history, it's, it's, it's he captures a lot of this very well, and he, he frames a lot of these problems very well. I mean, there are moments in politics when suddenly it becomes possible for you to sleep for three hours, uh, to speak with, uh, you know, 15 people you never knew before and suddenly organize uh, a massive demonstration that night. This Anybody who's participated in politics knows that experience. And uh, you also know that that doesn't go on forever. <laughs> you know, there are so many ways that that comes to an end it may come to an end just because you cannot your body cannot keep going it may come to an end because people are are, are unable to agree on anything and they begin to attack each other um and that's one of the dilemmas of uh these kinds of outbursts of politics that have to be understood and what you said you know the question of durability is a very complicated question and sometimes before i often thought uh, earlier, you raised the question of scale and so on. Uh, I often thought that the important thing is to figure out how a movement can grow. How and, and in mistaken identity, I talk about coalitions. There are various ways of understanding this, and, and you know that's all. These are all important and legitimate questions. But there's also what Badiou talks about, which is I think in Rebirth of Histories as contraction. Early on in theory of the subject, he called it concentration. There's a sense in which for there to be a durability, there has to be some shrinking too. That <laughs> you you have to get the people who are are really focused on this and who have come to a kind of uh, who have a, have shared reference points, who are capable of uh, lasting beyond the uh, moment of eruption, and and keeping keeping it going, keeping politics or the possibility of politics going. And uh, there has to be that as well. And so I think a lot of these questions about solidarity uh, and so on, they're questions that we can think through in terms of uh, how people relate to each other, how people understand issues of identity, how they understand their own experiences and what that has to do with their political participation. These are all important, but I think that actually uh, everything changes if you have a situation in which there is continuity of politics. If you can establish those organizational forms and you can have that kind of concentration, which let's understand it in a, in a broad sense. We're not talking about like uh, some kind of tightly knit party. We're, we're understanding this conceptually. Uh, if you have that, then I think different things become possible. So if solidarity suddenly becomes, you can approach it from an entirely different way uh, if you have that continuity of politics. Yeah, Badu calls it the possibility of the possibility of something new. Yes. And, and uh, there's this also this notion of fidelity in, in Badu, which the task of the philosopher is to be happy, but the victory comes at the end, this kind of thing. Uh, uh, Asad, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. I feel like I could speak to you for, for hours, but we're going to have to have you back again on uh, Below the Radar. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to talk about this material. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Fan City Office of Community Engagement. 
This has been our conversation with Asad Haider. You can find links to his book, Mistaken Identity, and other writings in the show notes. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar.